Over the past two decades in American education, the word accountability has come to be defined narrowly as rewards and sanctions based on student outcomes, most often their performance on state tests. So with end of year testing canceled in all 50 states due to the coronavirus pandemic, has accountability been canceled too? Or is there now an opportunity for policymakers to consider other means of holding schools and educators to account for their success in helping students learn? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Brian Gill. Brian's a senior fellow at Mathematica Policy Research and director of the Regional Educational Laboratory Mid-Atlantic, one of 10 federally funded labs that work to promote evidence-based policy and practice in American schools. He's also the author of a new blog post entitled Using Transparency to Create Accountability When School Buildings Are Closed. That's available now at educationnext.org and will be the focus of our conversation today. Brian, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks, it's good to be here, Marty, even if it's not quite in person. <laughs> well, uh, it's better than nothing, uh, which yes. is a lot of what we're getting these days. So uh, all 50 states, as I understand it, have received waivers from the federal government to cancel their end of year tests. Was this the right decision or should we have thought more creatively about ways to continue traditional testing in this new reality? Well, frankly, it's a little hard to imagine how states could have done otherwise in the current circumstances. Um, that said, I do think there are opportunities probably more at the district and school level to do some creative things to create accountability, even in the absence of the state assessments. And what you have in mind there is not finding a way to administer the traditional state test or even an alternative to it. You have in mind a very different approach. Is that, is that right? That's right. So as you alluded to at the beginning, in education policy for the last couple of decades, um, uh, we have tended to define accountability as a very specific kind of uh, formal consequences, rules-based system applied to test scores, typically. Um, in other fields, accountability means something much broader. And in the behavioral science literature, which is pretty extensive and has been around for quite a few decades, there's a lot of evidence uh, that accountability can be created a variety of different ways, many of which are related just to making an activity transparent. Now, some of these kinds of approaches are actually already used in schools, although we don't typically call them accountability. So for example, when a principal goes in to observe a teacher's instruction, that creates accountability through transparency. And it, it, it's gonna have that effect importantly, even if that, um, that observation is not a formal part of a teacher's evaluation. Now, today, of course, schools are closed. Some opportunities for creating accountability through transparency aren't available. But even so, um, it, it seems to me that there are two major ways that districts and schools can hold themselves accountable by making their work transparent. And so this broader perspective on accountability yeah. is something you've actually been writing about for some time now. Uh, and so to some degree, this is a moment to try to uh, bring those ideas to the fore. And so what are some specific ways in which policymakers might be able to draw on these insights from behavioral science to think about continuing accountability in the present moment? 
So, um, so in my view, there are two major ways that um, that educators and policymakers can can create accountability specifically through transparency, which again is what a lot of the, the psychological mechanisms amount to, ways of making activity transparent. Um, the first of those is that they can tell parents and the public what they are doing to engage students and promote learning while the schools are closed. Um, and many, many schools and districts are already trying to do that. The second way is a little more ambitious and uh, is not being very often done yet at least. And that's to report on the extent that, that you've succeeded as a district or a school in engaging your students. So if you can't monitor seat time, you can monitor logins to electronic systems. In some sense, it isn't a coincidence that accountability includes the words the word count, right? Um, you can, in fact, as a district, count lots of these engagements with students and families. And the fact that they're happy, happening digitally, in some instances, makes that counting easier to do. Um, so whether it's classes taught online, logins completed, IEP conferences held, there are a wide variety of different ways that, that I think that districts and schools that are engaged in remote learning will naturally actually are likely to have that data available and they can make them public and make themselves accountable that way. So let's go back to the first of these two approaches, uh, documenting and reporting exactly what districts are doing to help students continue learning from home. Uh, I imagine to some degree this amounts to publishing what your strategy is, just being transparent about it, which is essential uh, to even move forward with remote learning. But I can also imagine something even more explicit. I can imagine because I think I just saw it uh, in an email from my son's school district, Newton Public Schools here in Massachusetts. The school committee sent out an email that actually had a series of frequently asked questions. Uh, one of them being, why did you wait to start remote learning until this date? Uh, why are you doing it this way and that? Uh, I got the sense that they had received these questions from a number of, uh, of, of members of the community. And this was their chance to provide a public justification or, or rationale for the choices that they had made. It seems to me that that is an important form of, of accountability, reason giving and, and requiring yes. reason giving uh, that, uh, that we don't often think of in education, but could be quite powerful. Yeah, in fact, reason giving is one of the key um, uh, forms of accountability, the key mechanisms for creating accountability that the behavioral science literature has identified for a long period of time. Um, you do make people accountable by asking them to justify their actions. And, you know, it's great that, the, that in, in your case, the school committee is responding uh, appropriately to those kinds of questions. But the second strikes me as the more innovative or, or more intriguing uh, approach. And this idea of counting successful engagements with students and, and reporting on those numbers. What, uh, well, I find the idea appealing. I also want to play devil's advocate a little bit and try and push back on it. Uh, you know, the essence of the accountability movement in American education has been to shift the focus from tracking inputs or processes and 
make sure that we're focusing on student outcomes, what's being produced with those inputs by those processes. And it's not clear to me how well we can do that with the approach that you just articulated. Uh, we can sort of look at the inputs that are being delivered, how they're being delivered, but do we know enough about what the right approach is to remote learning to know that we're tracking the right things? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, and, you know, I think unfortunately we have to acknowledge that there isn't nearly enough existing rigorous research to provide clear guidance on what the best practices are for remote learning, the, the practices that will promote the best outcomes for students. Part of the problem is that most of the existing studies, even the ones that are, that are especially rigorous, they have not surprisingly been designed to compare the effectiveness of remote learning approaches with conventional classroom instruction. But when the school buildings are closed, conventional classroom instruction isn't the relevant comparison. Schools don't have that option. Um, they don't actually need to know at the moment whether a remote learning practice is better than classroom instruction. They need to know which remote learning practices are most effective when remote learning is the only option they've got. Um, and, um, you know, most of the studies weren't designed to get at that. They didn't contemplate this sit situation we're in now where the schools are entirely closed. Um, but I would say despite that, the existing research literature provides some results that can give us at least some pretty strongly suggestive guidance. Um, and in particular, studies of remote learning practices that show what you might view as failed results, at least relative to conventional classroom instruction, um, they demonstrate that the single biggest challenge in any remote uh, learning context is keeping the students engaged. Online charter schools, for example, um, have tended to produce weak academic results on average. Their own principles say that they have trouble keeping students engaged. Now, that shouldn't really be surprising because they provide less time in synchronous instruction, that is, instruction where there's some live, real-time interaction with the teacher. Not in person, obviously, but like we're doing here right now. They provide typically less time less synchronous instructional time in a week than a conventional school provides in a day. Um, the kids aren't getting much direct interaction with teachers. As a result, they're not very engaged. Similarly, if you look at higher education, the MOOCs, the massive open online courses that got so much hype a few years ago, I think are typically recognized now as having fallen far short of what they aim to do. Um, because about 95% of the participating students don't finish. Um, and again, this is another case where there's no direct interaction with the teacher. Um, it, it frankly is, shouldn't be too surprising that they're not working. So, you know, we, we're in a context now where it's very difficult to measure the outcomes that we're of course ultimately interested in. And it's not clear what sort of expectations we should have for outcomes. But I think what is clear is that, is that any approach that's gonna succeed will have to have 
some amount of synchronous interaction between teachers and students. And, you know, that's going to be true not just for academic reasons, um, but kids need to remain socially and emotionally connected to their teachers, to their classmates, particularly at a time when they have no choice but to be physically distant from them. So frankly, you know, ultimately, it's sort of hard to imagine that you could possibly get good results um, in terms of outcome if you don't at least have some uh, fairly consistent amount of direct interaction between teachers and students. So there may be some debate about just how much synchronous there should be relative right. to asynchronous, but we can be confident that we need a, a good bit of synchronous if we're going to be hopeful that this is going to work. And so the question then becomes, I guess, who is in position to track and report on these data? So in traditional state accountability systems, it's the state education agency that is playing the pivotal role in designing a unified framework for all of the districts and schools statewide. Uh, they sometimes by requiring districts to send in the information, but sometimes by gathering it themselves, they are housing all of the information centrally and issuing report cards. Uh, how, how would that process need to change to try and provide some measure of public accountability in the current environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and and I try to be clear in the in the blog that in the near term, this probably has to be something that that districts and schools are going to need to do voluntarily. States, uh, I'm not aware of any state that would have access to this kind of information systematically now. You could you could imagine that in the future, um, states could try to set up. Uh, reporting systems that would expect districts to do this sort of thing. And it might be something that they should start thinking about, given the, the reasonable likelihood that there will be additional closures um, next year. Um, this may not be the end of it. Um, but uh, for the moment, at least, um, it's, the, it's the districts and schools that have access to the information that um, to produce this kind of accountability. And so states may be able to try to find ways to pressure districts to be transparent in the ways you think would be desirable, but they're not going to be in the position to report results themselves or even to mandate, I would think, the exact same indicator uh, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, th there's... Um, the approaches to remote learning are, of course, incredibly diverse at the moment, and uh, the, uh, appropriately so, I think, given that nobody really knows what the best approach is. Um, and so it's a little hard to imagine a state today uh, saying there is one particular indicator that every district must produce. Um, nonetheless, uh, it's not hard to imagine a state encouraging districts to do something to report both kinds of information that we've talked about. First of all, what they are, what they are actually doing to engage the students, and then some evidence that the students are in fact engaged. One of the final points that you make in the blog post is that, uh, and I think it's an important one to highlight given the connotations that the term accountability has had in American education, is that in calling for this form of accountability, 
you're not saying that the indicators that you're arguing should be reported should be used on their own for high stakes decisions. So if that's the case, how should they be used? So again, you know, the, the literature from psychology and behavioral science indicates that you don't have to have stakes attached to, um, to have accountability matter. Um, it may be that there are some circumstances where it's useful to have stakes, atta stakes attached and that where, and where um, it isn't enough to just make things transparent. But there are many instances where the transparency and the reporting is accountability itself. And it seems to me appropriate to start with that whenever you're talking about some sort of new measure. Um, because of course, there's lots of evidence that um, uh, attaching high stakes can have unintended negative consequences too. And, and so starting with a low stakes environment is probably a good idea. Um, I guess I would also say generally to come back to your point about the fact that accountability measures have typically been about outcomes and that's been part of the point has been to focus on outcomes rather than processes. Um, it might be the case that um, that there's an opportunity now for future years for states to reimagine their accountability regimes in a broader way, not to eliminate attention to outcomes, but to first of all make sure they are employing a wide range of outcomes, given that test scores can only tell you so much, um, that they are doing this in ways that fairly recognize schools' contributions to those outcomes instead of just telling us which schools are serving advantaged versus disadvantaged kids, um, and also employing these other mechanisms um, that may not involve outcomes at all. The, the, the general idea here is that um, measuring things in education, I think, is very hard. And, and we don't have perfect measures of educational outcomes. And we ought to be using all of the tools in our toolkit, which will include attention to professional practices, for example. Um, making professional practice transparent is another way that we can um, create some accountability, which ideally would be complementary to looking at student outcomes. My guest today has been Brian Gill, Senior Fellow at Mathematica Policy Research and author of Using Transparency to Create Accountability When School Buildings Are Closed, which is available now at educationnext.org. Brian, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Marty. It's fun. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.